right. Good morning, church. Thank you, uh, Kate, and thank you all of our mothers again. Um, happy Mother's Day, all of you who are not here and uh, miss the great little event we just had here for our mothers. Um, open your Bibles with me, please, to John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8. Uh, if you uh, are new with us, uh, it's been really uh, such a joy of mine as we continue to go verse by verse through this incredible gospel of John. It's a book loaded with uh, divine truth. The depth of this gospel is vast and it's eternal because we're dealing with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I am thoroughly loving this study, though I must admit uh, the section that we're in has been so intense. There's a part of me looking forward to John chapter 8, though John chapter, or John chapter 9, John chapter 9 is almost as intense as John chapter 8, so we'll just preach it as it comes. Uh, today we'll be focusing on verses 48 to 59, but just so we can get the full context, it's been a couple weeks with Pastor Rick preaching, I want to start this morning in verse 31. We'll begin by reading the scripture all the way through, and then we'll take a closer look at it together. So let's begin the reading of God's holy word, starting in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, saying, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. 
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In these verses, a long, heated exchange between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel has finally hit a boiling point. This entire chapter in the previous chapter, chapter 7, has been marked by one extended confrontation and conflict. It has at last hit an intensity level that will eventually conclude in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In essence, the fuse is being lit right here, and for the next six months, the fuse will continue to spread, ending in our Lord's crucifixion. And what we see here started as a demonically inspired conspiracy to have Jesus arrested and to have him taken out of the way has now been infuriated to an open attempt to stone Jesus to death publicly. Now, we've traced this over the last several weeks through John chapter 7 and now continuing into John chapter 8. And as we're wrapping up this section, because it's really a section, chapter 7 and 8 should be read together, um, I want to just bring back to your attention some of these mountain peaks um, so you can really get your mind around all that is transpiring. Beginning in John chapter 7 and verse 1, we read that the Jews were seeking to kill him. In chapter 7, verse 19, Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? So he is fully aware of this escalating attempt to put him to death. In chapter 7, verse 25 we notice it even spread to those under the teaching of the Jewish leaders. It was the citizens of Jerusalem, the locals, who asked, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? They were shocked, remember, that Jesus was teaching openly in the temple. In chapter 7, in verse 30, we read they are seeking to 
arrest him or seeking to seize him. And in verse 32, we're told it was the chief priests who sent officers to arrest him. And then in John chapter 8, verse 37, Jesus says, you seek to kill me. And in verse 40 of John chapter 8, again, Jesus says, but now you seek to kill me. Well, this chapter ends in verse 59, as we just read, so they picked up stones to throw at him. And so before we begin our verse-by-verse exposition, we would ask the obvious question, why the animosity towards Jesus? And the answer is very simple, though it's twofold. Number one, Jesus has testified that their deeds are evil. The light has shined into the darkness of their lives and has exposed the religious leaders of Israel as hypocrites, liars. Jesus has stated that they do not know God. He has stated they are of their father, the devil. And he has stated that they will die in their sins unless they believe. And then the second reason for their animosity is the religious establishment is this a fearfulness of, of losing their turf. They are fearful of losing control over the people. We learn more about this a little later in John chapter 11, verse 48. When we see the chief priests and the Pharisees speaking about this, it says, if we let him, Jesus, go, go on like this, this is right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, if, if we let him continue on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, that is their position, and our nation, that is the control over the people. So they're fighting for all that they can in order to hang on to their ground and to have Jesus done away with. And by the way, nothing has changed over the centuries as people continue to be filled with animosity towards our Lord Jesus Christ for the words that he speaks, as well as religious leaders who are fearful of losing their supposed high ground if the words of Jesus were to be preached from the pulpit. So let us now begin in verse 48 and just sort of walk through these verses together. Uh, this is the inspired word of the living God. In our first uh, section, we see here the dishonor. The dishonor towards the Lord. Because these Jewish leaders now are holding absolutely nothing back, they just unload upon the Lord Jesus. We read this in verse 48. The Jews answered him saying, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Outraged by Jesus' pronouncements in verses 42 through 47, where Jesus has said, you are of your father, the devil, and you do not know God, they counter with this response. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's quite a one-two punch to throw at him. First of all, to call Jesus a Samaritan is in, entes, in essence a racial slur. Uh, the Samaritans, as we have previously, uh, previously noted, were despised by the Jews. John says as much in his gospel. They were considered 
half-breeds, both spiritually and physically. They were Jews who had intermarried with pagans, uh, going back to the time of the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And since that time, the the Samaritans uh, were hated by pure physical Jews. So this was a term of abuse. This is an inflammatory insult towards our Lord. Uh, You're only half of us. You're one half of pure Jews. That's what they're saying. It's an expression of hatred. But then coupled with it, almost as if synonymous, and you have a demon. A demon. This is a spiritual slur. And a moral indictment against the holy one of Israel. They're saying you are demon possessed, that hell lives inside of you, that you are controlled by the devil himself. They're charging him with being unclean and being Satan inspired. There's perhaps nothing more inflammatory that these religious that the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this sadly demonstrates just how blind the unregenerated heart truly is they think that up is down and down is up that heaven is hell and hell is satan that god is the devil and that the devil is god can you imagine being any blinder than what these religious leaders were this brings us to our second section called the denial In verses 49 to 51, Jesus responds with a strong disclaimer to their charge against him. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. He's very decisive about this. But I want you to notice, Jesus isn't here to vindicate himself. He isn't here to defend himself as to promote himself. And so he quickly shifts the entire focus onto the glory of God his Father. And what matters most to the Lord Jesus Christ in this time of his incarnation is being a guardian of his Father's glory. I mean, you can assault me all you want, uh, but you may not trample on the name of the Father. And this is how we should respond as well whenever we find ourselves being persecuted. You can call me whatever you want to, but we would respond. We would respond in the truth when you begin to blaspheme the name of our God. And so Jesus immediately proceeds to, but I honor my father. To honor his father is to bring glory to the father. And this is what Jesus is most concerned with. And the way that Jesus has been honoring his father is by saying and doing the things that the father has given him to say and to do. Jesus has said, the very words that I speak have been given to me by my father. He said back in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Ironically, by their dishonoring of Jesus, the Jews were dishonoring the very God whom they claimed as their father. In John chapter 8, verse 42, Jesus said to him, If God were your father, you would love me, 
for I came from God. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. This is why in verse 49, Jesus can say, I honor my father and you dishonor me. How have they dishonored the son? Well, it's obvious by refusing to receive his words, which are the very words that have been given to him by the father to speak. And by refusing to honor the son, they dishonor the father who sent him. Remember, Jesus previously warned back in uh, chapter 5, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The two can't be separated. Father and Son, and of course the Spirit. Now, notice here in verse 50, this, this is amazing, and we should take heed to what Jesus is saying. He said, yet I do not seek my own glory. He's very insistent with I, I, I do not seek my own glory. That is, he is not here for self-promotion. Jesus isn't working off of his own agenda. Rather, he seeks the glory and the honor of the Father by obedience to do the Father's will. This also suggests that they are not seeking the glory of the Father, that they are actually building their own kingdom that they are actually promoting their own ministry and their own glory, and that they actually are elevating themselves rather than seeking the glory of the Father. And by the way, it can never be both. Either we seek to bring glory to God and to build his kingdom, or we're seeking our own glory and are seeking to establish our own kingdom. At the end of verse 50, Jesus says, there is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Though Jesus did not seek his own glory, there is one who seeks the glory of the Son. And this one is God the Father. What the Father seeks is to glorify the Son. The Son has no need to promote his own glory because that is the work of the Father, to elevate the Son and to build the kingdom of the Son. And this will ultimately uh, find its expression in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11 as we see that the Son has humbled himself, making himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, the Father, God, has highly exalted the Son and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son brings glory to God the Father. And the Father bestowed glory to the Son and to his kingdom. We heard it expressed at the time of the Lord's baptism at the river Jordan. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the heavens open up, and the voice of God the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, again, the, the heavens opens up, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hear he him. 
the Father is relentless in pursuing the magnification of the honor and the glory of the Son. Therefore, Jesus does not need to seek his own glory. And the same is true for you and me. We do not need to elevate ourselves. God will elevate us if, if we humble ourselves. In Luke 18, verse 14, he says, Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Our chief focus is to magnify Christ and to trust God. And at the proper time and in the proper way, he will elevate us. And so Jesus rests in this fact. I, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he will be the judge of these. In verse 51, Jesus wraps up the denial with a now familiar, truly, truly, I say to you. And whenever we see this declaration, truly, truly, or, or most assurably, it's a cue to pay attention. It underscores the major significance of what is about to follow. And what follows is one of the most important statements to ever come from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to pause here for just a few minutes as we look at this because this is so critically important. <coughs> Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, he begins with, if anyone. <laughs> this is the free offer of the gospel. To whosoever will. If anyone. This word anyone is as wide as the human race. This anyone was wide enough to take us from the dead and to bring us to life. This is even being extended in this very moment 2,000 years ago to these men who are actively seeking to kill Jesus. See, when Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, Jesus didn't just say it, he lived it. He showed us over and over again, these are the very people who are orchestrating and plotting to kill him. These are his enemies. And Jesus is offering to them the way of salvation. If anyone, if anyone, how gracious is our Lord. Now, notice though the condition that Jesus attaches. He says, if anyone keeps my word. Now, my word here primarily refers to the gospel message, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, but the word keeps here is, is a very important word because keeps here is used synonymously with true saving faith. And throughout the Gospel of John, we have noted there's a clear distinction that John is making, a distinction between true and false disciples. John highlights for us over and over again that there are those who will initially respond, as we see in the parable of the seeds, they'll initially respond, some might prop up for a little while, in the Gospel of John, some will initially respond positively to Christ. They may even believe in his name and his works, as we saw at the end of John chapter 2. These are people who believe in Jesus on some level, only later to reject him, as we saw demonstrated in John chapter 6. 
verse 66, as many of his, uh, Jesus' disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The prototypical false disciple highlighted as chapter 6 closes is Judas, when it says that though one of the twelve, Judas, he was later to betray Jesus. So this word keeps then becomes a very important word that, that should sharpen our focus and our understanding as to the nature of true saving faith. This word keeps is actually a military word. It means to watch over. It means to guard. It means to protect. It carries the idea of embracing, to give heed to, to observe, to keep holding on to, not letting the word escape from you. True saving faith does not go in one ear and out the other ear. It's more than a verbal confession. It doesn't last for only a weekend. True saving faith lays hold of the words of Christ and will not let them go. It means to cleave to, to remain in. It literally means to live in and to obey. And so here we learn that true saving faith is far more than a mere intellectual knowledge of the words of Christ. True saving faith will live by his words for the rest of your life. Just as we saw in the word abide, in this word keeps is the idea of a lifelong perseverance. It is faith in Christ and his word that keeps on believing, that keeps on keeping on. It will never stop believing. It will never let go of its grips of the words of Christ. It may weaken at times, but it will never let go. A true believer will never become an unbeliever. An unbeliever may become a believer, but a believer will never revert back to becoming an unbeliever. Because true saving faith keeps the words of Christ because they are your lifeline. It's what connects you to the mercy and to the grace of God and through the power of His Spirit. And because through the new birth we do receive a new heart that has new affections and new desires for God's word, and because God has written his word on your heart, and he took that heart of stone out from your flesh, and he puts his spirit within us, he causes us, as Ezekiel 36 says, to walk in his statutes. It is ultimately all a work of God. As he preserves us in the faith, Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out thank god so what jesus has said here in verse 51 is utterly profound it does not mean that we don't ever stumble nor trip and it does not mean that we do not ever disobey his commandments but it does mean that on the whole we keep on to his word and then please notice the result of keeping the word of god jesus says truly truly i say to you if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. <laughs> will never, that's absolute certainty from our Lord Jesus Christ. Will never see death. You know, he is speaking, of course, on a spiritual level. He's not speaking on a, on a physical death level. All of us will die physically unless the Lord comes first. The Bible says, Hebrews 
9 to 27, is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Um, so Jesus is not saying that a believer will never see physical death. Of course we will. Um, this is speaking of spiritual death, which in the Bible is referred to as the second death that we see in Revelation. It is eternal death. A believer will die physically, but you will never be more alive. The Bible says that you will be instantly in the presence of our Lord, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 7 through 8, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Paul says, we do not lose heart. That though our outer self is wasting away, this is in chapter 4, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And when we die physically, our inner person, our spirit that has been redeemed will immediately go into the presence of Christ. And the Bible says he will be preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So Jesus gives us here then in verse 51 the promise that we will never see death. What a glorious promise, my friends. You know, we live in a world right now that is in a constant state of panic over this coronavirus. But friends, I want to remind you of something, and this is not to make light of anyone's loss. So many have experienced uh, so much over this past year or so. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if you were to contract the virus and die, though you die physically, you will never die spiritually. You will never be more alive than you were ever on this earth. Okay? We have the very promise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It's a person, the resurrection. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? And the church said, amen. <laughs> yes we do eternal life is a new quality of life now zoe we've talked about uh, much there's three terms of life in the bible zoe is the abundant life that uh, we get blessed with as redeemed believers here on earth but more importantly it is an endless duration that we can't even wrap our heads around you will be in the presence of god for all of eternity and this is why the Apostle Paul could say in Philippians 1, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <laughs> Paul is saying, as long as I'm alive, yes, I'm going to keep preaching Christ. You bet. But if I die, oh, I'll gain so much more. Uh, it's going to be even sweeter, because I know I'm going to be immediately with my Lord. So let's look at the third section and the denunciation. The denunciation, rather than receive Jesus' word and believe in this great gospel truth, you might have thought that these men would have fallen on their face and cried out, A son of David, have mercy on me! No, they instead denounced the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at their response in verse 52. 
the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Uh, the very message that should have melted their hearts only hardened them even more. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Of course, they're only thinking on a, a physical level. And so their reasoning is, is, how can you promise if anyone keeps your word that he will never die? Uh, how can you even make this claim, Jesus? Verse 53, they continue. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Uh, who do you make yourself out to be? They, they just keep digging in their heels here even more firmly. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? Uh, this is yet another question that expects a negative answer. They are saying, uh, who do you make yourself out to be? In other words, who on earth do you think you are? The Christ? <laughs> They're not actually searching for answers. Their hearts aren't being moved to the Lord. They are cruelly demeaning Jesus, and their answer will not go unaddressed. Jesus will answer this question in verse 58. But before we jump down to verse 58, I want you to notice number four in the defense. The defense, because once again, in answering his critics, Jesus chooses not to focus on himself Rather than to vindicate himself, he rests in the Father's exaltation of him. And this is a totally applicable to all of us as we watch this descent. Verse uh, 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, um, if I seek to promote myself, if I seek to elevate myself, he says, my glory is nothing. Huh. In other words, that glory would be of zero value. It would be worth absolutely nothing at all. It is my father who glorifies me. That's all he's concerned about. Again, Jesus is content to leave this entire ma uh, matter in the hands of his sovereign father. And while Jesus is in this posture of um, self-humiliation in his incarnation... All that he does, he does by trusting in the Father. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. So in other words, there's another layer of reasoning here with Jesus. If the Father glorifies me, and he's your God, then you should be glorifying me also. Rather, you are seeking to kill me. Something's wrong there, isn't there? There's something a little wrong. Verse 55, Jesus drops the gavel. But you have not known him, speaking of the Father. This is actually the third time in these two chapters, 7 and 8, that Jesus comes right out and says, You do not know God. He said it in chapter 7, verse 28. He said it in chapter 8, verse 19. And he says it here in verse 55. You do not know God. You do not have a saving relationship with the Father. You do not love him. Uh, you do not seek his glory. You seek your own. You do not know him. But now, the contrast, Jesus says, but I know him. What a statement. Of course the Son knows 
the Father. I know him. He's been with the Father for all eternity past. In fact, is how the gospel of John started. Chapter 1, verse 1 of this great gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Cross theos. Uh, it, it literally is a picture of the, the Father and Son being face to face for all eternity past. And then in verse 18 of John chapter 1, it says that the Son was in the bosom of the Father. The bosom of the Father, a posture of loving intimacy and closeness of relationship and all of this without beginning throughout all of the eons and ages of eternity past. The Father has loved the Son and the Son has loved the Father and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have lived in this perfect harmony for eternity past to eternity future. Now at the end of verse 55, Jesus now calls them to their faith liars. He says, if I were to say that I do not know him, speaking of the Father, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. There's several things to say about this. First of all, they were liars because they do not know God. They do not know God. And the reason that they are liars is stated in verse 44. Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, who is a liar and the father of lies. He's the power behind your throne. He is inducing you to speak the lies that you are saying right now to me. And this deceptive religious system that you're under, giving you a false assurance of this right relationship with God the Father, it's a deception from the devil himself. What Jesus has just said is extraordinarily strong. Verse 56, Jesus continues. He says, your father Abraham, he's talking about their, their physical father, not their spiritual father, from the descent of Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. But more than that, Jesus adds, and he saw it and was glad. <laughs> How did Abraham see the coming of Christ? Through eyes of faith. Through the spiritual eyes of faith. God revealed it to Abraham. That there would be a Messiah who would come and fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. And brothers in our disciple group, you recognize this language. That there would be one who would come. He would be the suffering servant. He would be the savior of sinners. And Abraham believed what God revealed to him. And he looked forward to the day of the coming Christ. And he saw that day by faith and he rejoiced in it. And here we see it reinforced again that there is only one way of salvation in both the Old and New Testaments. There isn't two different Gospels. That would be two different roads to heaven. There's only one Gospel. There's only one way to get to, have, uh, to heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those in the Old Testament were saved exactly like we are in New Testament Times. They were saved in the Old Testament by looking ahead 
to the first coming of Christ. The Old Testament is filled with this is who he's going to be. And they believed. And they believed as we are saved by looking back to the first coming of Christ. But we all meet at the foot of the cross. And we all stand by faith. Now certainly we also know that from scripture that there has been what some call progressive revelation. Okay? As there has been a, a gradual unfolding of more and more truth revealed in scripture about our Lord Jesus Christ from the beginning of Genesis until the end of the book of Revelation. But nevertheless, Christ was revealed in the Old Testament and Abraham was saved just like you and I are justified by faith. Genesis 15 verse 6, if you forgot, says Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So I think the point has been made. So I ask you today, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? This now leads us to verse 57 and, and point number five, the defiance. This is like a tennis match. I mean, it's this heated, intense conversation of just rapid fire going back and forth. There's not a moment of downtime. And so in verse 57, uh, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? <laughs> oh, they respond in total defiance, sarcasm. Uh, how do you know what makes Abraham happy? Uh, who do you think that you're kidding? You've never met Abraham. Uh, how do you know what Abraham's joy is? Uh, how do you know what Abraham saw? Uh, how do you know what Abraham knew? You don't know that. You're not even 50 years old. And by the way, Luke 3, 23 tells us that Jesus was about 30 when he started his ministry. Some have speculated uh, of the great stress on his life through his earthly ministry that maybe gave him an appearance of being older than he really was who knows it, it would be understandable wouldn't it after all he had gone through um so they just mocked him uh, wh what a joke you are uh you know what abraham saw and what brought abraham joy uh who are you kidding uh, this leads us to point number six and the declaration the declaration of christ Jesus responds with the most shocking truth as he responds by answering their original question, who do you make yourself out to be? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, this is uh, um, amen and amen in the Greek. He has to use this again because this is so stunning. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. Because he's an eternal being, there's no I was. He always is. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the name of God, uh, Yahweh. This is what's called the Tetragrammaton, what's in Exodus chapter 3. Verse 14, God's name, say, I am that I am sent me. This is the great I am. It's how John started his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
This is a stunning and staggering self-claim being made by Jesus. He is, in fact, claiming to be Emmanuel, God with us. He is claiming to be God in human flesh who has come down to this earth in order to take sinners back to heaven upon faith in him. Must you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ in order to be saved? The answer is a resounding yes. If you deny he is not fully God or fully man, if you deny his sinless life or his substitutionary death and sacrifice on the cross, you are without salvation. It's a different gospel. You have trampled underfoot the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and you insult the spirit of grace. You must believe in the full deity of Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God. He's the son of man. He is the great I am come in human flesh in order to be saved. Your faith is no greater than the object of your faith. And if you believe in a Jesus who is less than fully God, you have laid hold of a false Christ who cannot and will not save you. Let's close with the disappearance. The disappearance we see in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They picked up stones to throw at him because they knew they knew he was making himself out to be God. I love how everyone says, uh, the Lord never claimed to be God in the Bible. We have read it over and over again in the Gospel of John already. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying, better than what the cults believe that Jesus was saying, sadly. These Pharisees understood exactly the claim that Jesus was making, his claim that he was the eternal God. So they picked up stones to stone him to death because the law of the Old Testament, it required that a, a blasphemer should be stoned. That's why they stoned Stephen. He believed in, that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Son of God. But they picked up stones. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. For, again, it was not his hour. It was not his hour. His hour would come in just six short months. And there was nothing on earth or under the earth that could prevent the divinely appointed hour when Jesus would be lifted up upon that cross to die for sinners. So as we close today, and really after we've looked these two chapters, you may be saying to yourself, so what does this say through me as a Christian? What's the relevance of any of these verses for today? Well, if you are a follower of Christ, did Jesus not say in John chapter 15, verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. This is a promise from our Lord, yes, first applied to his apostles, but certainly, secondly, applied to all who follow Jesus Christ. And as followers of Christ, we should expect to be persecuted in this world as we are living certainly in the last days and days that are changing by the hour, even as churches are shut down from being able to meet, we're living in times in which any sense of the fear of God has evaporated like a mist upon the grass. We are permanently left with a, um, or primarily left with a godless culture, a godless government, and a godless courts 
And the price for us to be a follower of Jesus Christ is escalating at the moment. And I would suspect it won't be long before we find ourselves standing in the sandals of Christ. Just like he was in this heated, intense conflict, it will not be long unless the Lord intervenes in some way that the inevitable will come about that we will find ourselves paying a high price for owning the name of Jesus and standing upon our beliefs that are rooted and grounded in the word of God. So though, yes, this message was 2,000 years ago, this conflict remains very relevant because this is the same devil and the same power that Satan works in. It is the same message that's being delivered into our schools and into our homes. So now we need to deepen our faith. We need to deeper our commitment to Christ right now. We need to be strong in the word of God. We need to keep his word and have it planted inside of us before this gathering storm is unleashed. And remember Christ's promise, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What a savior. If you need prayers today, <clears throat> we would love to pray for you. Uh, we'll have some great men and women down front here who would uh, be happy to pray with you. Please stand as we sing the song of invitation. Oh, come to the altar.